you have your Bibles, I um, invite you to open them to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel this morning. Ezekiel chapter 16 is going to be our passage, and we don't normally preach from the book of Ezekiel, so it may t- take you some time to find it, which is okay. It's near the middle of your Bible. After Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, you will find Ezekiel. Or you can do what I do and just look it up in the table of contents at the front of your Bibles. Either way, I invite you to make your way there to Ezekiel chapter 16. And this is a passage that the Lord has placed on my heart over the last uh, few weeks because it so graphically and powerfully communicates to us the undying love of God for his people. And I just remind you of what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, when he said that he prays that the church will be strengthened in the inner man through the power of the Holy Spirit, and that he prayed that the church would see what the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of God's love is. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that they would be filled to all the fullness of God. You know, Paul looked at the church and he wanted the church to be strengthened. He wanted the church to be encouraged. He wanted the church to be filled with God's blessing, with God's power, with God's endurance. And he knew that the only way for the church to be filled to all the fullness of God is they needed to behold the love of God in the person of Jesus Christ. They needed to see how high and how wide and how deep and how long the love of Christ is in the gospel of the cross. And when they beheld that love, then they would be filled with the strength in the inner man. And that's really just my heart for you this morning. That is the elders and the pastor's heart for each member of Cornerstone Bible Church is we want you to see the love of God. We want you to see the cross. We want you to see Christ's love for you. We want you to believe that God loves you as you are right now, not after you do any works, but as you are right now, We want you to believe in the love of God. And it's really with that heart that I want you to take you to Ezekiel chapter 16 because in this passage what we gain is a powerful view of God's love for us. I believe that this chapter will take us to the cross. It will help us taste of Christ's love for us. And I trust that your heart will be strengthened as you behold the great love of God and his undying love for his people. If I were to give a title to this chapter, I would entitle it God's Love for Spiritual Adulterers. God's Love for Spiritual Adulterers. What we're going to see in this passage is that we are far worse sinners than we think we are, that our sin runs deeper than we think it does, and yet at the same time, God's love for us is greater than our sin. And although we are more sinful than we ever dared believe, we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope, all because of Christ's work on our behalf. Ezekiel chapter 16 is a parable of God's relationship with the city of Jerusalem. It is a parable that traces Jerusalem's origins from its birth to its destruction. And this is a parable that will unfold for us in four distinct acts. And so let's look at these acts together as God describes his relationship with Jerusalem. Act number one is the birth of Jerusalem. The birth of Jerusalem, starting in verse one. 
Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. And say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out in the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. The first act opens with this stunning scene of a baby being thrown out in the field to die. This is a baby born to a mother that does not love her. It is a baby born to a father who abhors her very existence. And so this baby is not even treated with the normal courtesy of, of human kindness. Its umbilical cord is not cut. Her body is not washed from the blood from her mother's birth canal. She is simply flung out in the field to die because no eye has pity on her. No, no one cares for her existence. She is abhorred by her natural parents. In verse 6, God says, And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. God finds this unwanted baby in the wilderness he has pity and compassion on her. He causes her to live. She rises under her, his care to beauty and health and stature. And so God says, this was the birth of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem was born because of the sovereign grace of God. It was because God had pity and God had compassion. It was not because she was a great city or deserved anything from God. It was simply because of God's sovereign grace. And if you trace the history of the city of Jerusalem, you see that Jerusalem was, was, was originally a, a pagan city. It was a Canaanite city, and the, the land of Canaan was filled with the Amorites and the Hittites. And it is purely out of God's sovereign grace that God chose Jerusalem. And Jerusalem became the capital city of the nation of Israel. Under King David, it was, it was Jerusalem that was the focal point of the nation. In fact, the, the, the city itself became synonymous with the nation because it was the center of the entire nation. This was all because of God's sovereign grace. And in verses 1 to 7, we see the birth of Jerusalem. And then in verse 8, we move to the second act of this dramatic story. And the second act is the marriage of Jerusalem. The marriage of Jerusalem. Verse 8, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. You will notice again the sovereign initiative of God. Verse 6, I passed by you and saw you in your blood. Verse 7, I made you flourish like a plant of the field. Verse 8, I passed by you again. Verse 8, I spread the corner of my garment over you. I made my vow to you and entered into covenant with you. God is the one who acts in this story. And God not only cares so much about this city, that he loves her and that he rescues her from being wallowing 
in the field. But God loves Jerusalem so much that he enters into a marriage covenant with her. He says, I spread the corner of my garment and covered your nakedness. In Old Testament times, spreading the corner of your garment was a way of initiating marriage. You see that Boaz in, in the story of Ruth covered Ruth with the corner of his garment. And he was saying to Ruth that I will be your husband. I will love you. I will take care of you. I promise to provide for you. I promise to redeem you. I am your husband. And so God does in this story to the city of Jerusalem. He covers her with a corner of his garment. He covers her nakedness. And he enters into a marriage covenant with Jerusalem. Now, if you think about it for a moment, this picture is absolutely stunning. Because it is enough that the Lord of the universe, the king of all creation, the one who holds the Milky Way and the stars in his hands, would even know our name, would even care that we live or die. It is enough that this Lord of the universe would have compassion upon Jerusalem and rescue her from death when no one cared about her and no one saw. But his grace goes beyond all of that and his grace extends to the point where he says, not only Jerusalem have I saved you and not only Jerusalem have I provided for you, but Jerusalem, I desire an intimate, personal relationship with you, a relationship that is so personal, so emotional, so passionate, that it can only be described with the picture of marriage. I want to marry you. And he says, you became mine. You were my bride. You became my wife. I, I don't just want to be your king. I don't just want to be your shepherd. I want to be your husband. So great is God's love for the city of Jerusalem. We ask the question, what kind of marriage did God have with this city? And verse 9 tells us it was a marriage of joy. It was a marriage of passion. We could say that God was a love-struck Husband, verse 9, I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. God says, nothing but the best for my wife. Nothing but the best for my precious bride. I will do for you what your father and mother never did for you. I will clothe you, and I will wash you, and I will care for you. In verse 11, he does the equivalent of taking his wife to Tiffany's and sending her on a shopping spree. Buy whatever jewelry you want. I love you so much. I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. I put a ring on your nose and earrings on your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. 
Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. This bride, this wife, there is no part of her body that is not covered with jewelry. God says, I love you so much. He, he could be described as a, as a smitten lover. This is no marriage of duty. It is a marriage of joy. And in verse 13, the equivalent is he takes her to the finest of restaurants. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Some of you ladies are saying, I need a husband like this. (laughs) I mean, I need a guy who's just going to lavish me with jewels and food and clothes. That's exactly the point. God is a husband like this to his people. God is the ultimate husband who will never disappoint, who will always satisfy. God loves Jerusalem with a lavish love. He drowns his wife with the finest of provisions. Isaiah 54.1, God said to Israel, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, for your maker is your husband. I'm your husband. Don't you understand? In Zephaniah 3, verse 14, God declared his exuberant joy for the people he loves. He says, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord your God is in your midst. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Some of you husbands may remember the time of your honeymoon and how your heart was filled with songs of love, cheesy love songs. And the Lord looks at Jerusalem and says, my heart is filled with songs for you. You're my bride. You're my beloved wife. And the story that we see in the Old Testament reaches a climax in the New Testament where Jesus Christ, the Son of God, says the same thing to the church where he says, I'm not just your Lord, I'm not just your King, I'm not just your Sovereign, I'm not just your Shepherd, I am your husband, you are my bride and I have come to purchase you for myself. In verses 1 to 7, we see the birth of Jerusalem. Verses 8 to 14, we see the marriage of Jerusalem. And that makes the third act all the more heartbreaking because in verse 15, we come to the adultery of Jerusalem. The adultery of Jerusalem. After all that Jerusalem received, she was not a faithful wife. She was not a faithful bride. And just a warning here, what's going to follow is not a G-rated description of Jerusalem's sin. And we need to understand that 
the ugliness of our sin is not G-rated in nature. And that the message of the cross is not a G-rated message. In verse 15, we see Jerusalem's sin exposed in full ugliness of what it was. And it reads, but you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because your renown and you lavish your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver which I had given you and made for yourself images of men and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them for pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord God. Verse 23, and after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. Verse 28, you played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them and still you were not satisfied. You multiplied your whoring also with the trading land of Chaldea and even with this, you were not satisfied. How lovesick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. Yet you are not like a prostitute, because you scorn payment. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment, while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you are different. One commentator on the book of Ezekiel remembers the time when his friend came over to his house, and this friend had just had a wife who committed adultery. And the friend brought his wedding photo album to his house, and opened the pages and looked through the pages of their marriage and wept over the pages for his faithless wife. And this commentator says that this is essentially what God is doing in this chapter. He's recalling the days with his beloved wife, Jerusalem, the wife whom he loved. And he's recalling how this city has broken her, his heart, she has run after other lovers. How she has not just committed adultery one time or two times, but committed adultery numerous times with numerous lovers. 
She was so brazen in her adultery. She did not tiptoe around the house trying to hide it. No, she went out into the public square and she offered herself to any man who would have her. She was a prostitute who did not take payment. Instead, she paid her lovers to have relations with her. And she took all of the blessings that God had given to her, all of the jewels and all of the garments and all of the food that God had given to her in, her, in his love, and she used them to entice other lovers to, her, to herself. And this passage is God weeping over Jerusalem's unfaithfulness. It is the broken heart of God crying out after the, the wife he loves. Say, oh, Jerusalem, how faithless you have been. How you have broken our marriage covenant. In this passage, we see a graphic picture of sin. That this is what sin is. Sin is spiritual adultery. Sin is not just breaking God's rules. Sin is breaking God's heart. Sin is not just doing bad things. Sin is going after other lovers. It is pursuing other lovers and saying to them, you will satisfy. You will meet my need. You will rejoice my heart in a way that God cannot And we learn from this passage that God is the only one who will satisfy our hearts, and yet our hearts, like Jerusalem's, long to go astray. Verse 35. Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered and your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols because of the blood of your children that you gave to them, therefore behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. And I will give you into their hands and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring up a crowd against you and they shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords and they shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. I will make you stop playing the whore, and you shall also give payment no more. Ezekiel writes these words in the darkest days of Israel's history. He writes these words just, just before the Babylonians come and completely destroy the city of Jerusalem. In fact, we would say that the timing of Ezekiel's prophecy is as the destruction of Jerusalem is taking place. When the Babylonians destroy the city of Jerusalem in 586 BC, they, they took captives by stages. 
And Ezekiel was actually taken captive in one of the first stages. And he is actually in Babylon, watching Jerusalem from afar and seeing that judgment is imminent for this city who was God's bride. And the, the dynamic that we see in this passage is this, that the same lover, the same lover whom Jerusalem gave her heart to, the same lover that Jerusalem committed adultery with, the same lover that Jerusalem said, you will be my joy, you will be my satisfaction, you will be my peace, you will be my provider, will be the tool that God uses to utterly destroy her. In verse 29, we see that the Babylonians, who are also known as the Chaldeans, were one of Jerusalem's lovers, And it is the Babylonians whom God will use to completely destroy the city. 2 Kings 25 describes the destruction of the city. It says that the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him. They slaughtered his sons before his eyes. They burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house was burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans broke down the walls around Jerusalem and the rest of the people were taken into exile. How are we to understand this terrible scene of the bride of God committing adultery and then receiving destruction as a result? And I want to emphasize this very important point is that the people of Israel and the Old Testament labored under what is known as the Old Covenant. The story of the Old Testament is the story of the Old Covenant. And the Old Covenant was given through the prophet Moses. It is also known as the Mosaic Covenant. And essentially, the Old Covenant was a covenant of law. At the center of the Old Covenant was the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments and all the laws that are, that are recounted in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. That was the Old Covenant. And what's important for us to understand is that the Old Covenant was a conditional covenant. It was highly conditional in nature. What God said in the Old Covenant is that if you obey my law, you will be blessed. And if you disobey my law, you will be cursed. If you want further study on this, you can read Leviticus chapter 26 or Deuteronomy chapter 28, and you will see the highly conditional nature of the Old Covenant. If you obey, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed. That was the Old Covenant. What we see in the course of Old Testament history is that Israel could not keep the law. 
that they time and time again traveled down the path of disobedience and they received the cursings of the old covenant and not the blessings. And what we find in Ezekiel chapter 16 is the ultimate climax of their failure to keep this covenant. They receive the ultimate cursing of the covenant in that Jerusalem is destroyed and taken into exile. Now, at this point in the story, it seems like this is the end. We have followed Jerusalem as she is born and cast out in the field to die. We have watched God's loving care for her as she grows up into a beautiful young woman and God marries her and enters into a relationship with her. We've watched her commit adultery time and time again and give her heart away to lovers who are not God. And now we have witnessed the sad end to her multiplied sins. The Babylonians will come. They will destroy the city. All as a result of their failure to keep the old covenant. And we think this is done. I mean, times are dark. There is no hope. There is no future for this bride. We would say that this is a failed marriage. But in verse 59, we move to the fourth and the final act of this great story. We saw the birth of the city. We saw the marriage of the city. We saw the adultery of the city. And here in verse 59, we come to the restoration of the city. The restoration of the city. Verse 59, for thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. And you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on the account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you. For all that you have done, declares the Lord God. This is the second time in the chapter where the language of covenant is used. The first time was all the way back in verse 8, where God entered into this marriage covenant with the city of Jerusalem. That first covenant is the old covenant, is the Mosaic covenant. The old covenant where God set Israel aside to be his own precious possession. But as we see through the course of this chapter, that first covenant was a covenant Israel broke. They failed to keep the covenant. 
And God says, you have broken my covenant. And just when we think that that's the end of the story, God begins to speak in future tense. In verse 60, he says, I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. And in verse 62, he says again, I will establish my covenant with you. And what God is essentially saying at the end of this chapter is that though Jerusalem has failed to keep the old covenant, has time and time again broken the terms of the old covenant, God is going to make a new covenant. He is going to make a new covenant that is not like the old covenant. He is going to make a new covenant that will not be a conditional covenant. It will not be a covenant of blessings and cursings, that if you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. No, this new covenant will be a unilateral covenant. It will be a one-way promise where God promises to pour out upon Israel and Jerusalem his blessings, his love, his favor, not conditioned upon their obedience to the law. The old covenant was a covenant of law. The new covenant will be a covenant of grace. God says, you have broken my old covenant, but I will make a new covenant. And essentially what he is saying at the end of chapter 16 is I am a more faithful husband than you thought I was. My love is greater than even your spiritual adultery. You have been faithless to me. You have broken my heart time and time again. You have spurned my love. You've given your heart away to other lovers. And yet, I will not give you up. I will be faithful to you. And if you will break my old covenant, I will make a new covenant. And he says this new covenant will be an everlasting covenant It will supersede and replace the provisions of the old covenant. And in Ezekiel 36, verse 24, God expands upon the provisions of the new covenant. And he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Verse 
You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Jeremiah 31, 31, God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The old covenant was a covenant of law and Israel could not keep the terms of that covenant. The old covenant revealed the holiness of God, the inapproachability of God, and Israel could not measure up to what the old covenant required of them. And so God makes here a new covenant. And in this new covenant, God promises unilaterally Blessings that will flow into anyone who partakes of the blessings of this covenant. He promises a new, regenerated heart. Not a heart that has to obey, but a heart that wants to obey, a heart that delights to obey, because it is not a heart of stone, but God will put in his people a heart of flesh. And he will write his law on their hearts so that there is a newfound delight and joy in obeying the will of God. In this new covenant, there is the promise of forgiveness, the promise of permanent, universal forgiveness, where he says, I will forgive their iniquity, I will remember their sin no more. In this covenant, there is the promise of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit that was not available under the old covenant. God says in the new covenant, I will put my spirit not on you, but within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to obey my rules. And in this new covenant, there is the promise of a new intimate relationship with God that was not available under the old covenant. You say, damn, the old covenant was a covenant of marriage. How much more intimate can you, can you get? But the new covenant promises even a more intimate relationship with God where God says, they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. I will be their God and they shall be my people. This new covenant will not be like the old covenant, the covenant which Israel broke. But it will usher in a period of grace and of blessing unknown in Old Testament times. 
And what God is saying at the end of Ezekiel 16 is, Jerusalem, you have been an adulterous wife. And yet I'm not through with you. My love is a faithful love. My love is an undying love. My love is a stubborn love. I will not let you go. I will do what it takes to bring you to myself. And if it means that I have to to put away the old covenant and make a new covenant and, and give you a heart of flesh that you would love me and know me, then that is what I'm going to do. But my love does not give up. Though you multiply your whorings time and time again, I am not only a lavish husband, I am a faithful husband. the end of Ezekiel 16, God says Jerusalem's going to be restored. And in the great redemptive plan of God, we see that we're still waiting for that day. We're still waiting for that day when Israel, the nation of Israel, and the city of Jerusalem will repent from their unbelief and come to bow their knee to the Messiah that they were given. We know that the first time their Messiah came that they rejected him and they nailed him to a cross. And in the great mystery of God's will for us that God has allowed us, Gentiles, non-Jews, to believe in and to trust in a Jewish Messiah. And you might ask, Dan, where are we in the story? I mean, obviously, we are not Jerusalem. We meet in Garden Grove. And last time I checked, no one mistook Garden Grove from being the new Jerusalem. We are not Jerusalem. We are the Gentile church. And yet somehow, the amazing grace of God is that the New Testament makes clear that though this new covenant is not our covenant, that though this new covenant was made originally with the nation of Israel and with the city of Jerusalem and the ethnic descendants of Abraham, that somehow, in the marvelous grace of God, we as the Gentile church have been grafted into the new covenant. And you say, how on earth have we been made to partake of the new covenant And the answer is what Jesus said when he instituted the Lord's table. He took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. He said that it is my blood that will ratify the provisions of the new covenant. It is my blood on the cross that will allow the blessings of the new covenant 
to flow into anyone's life. Anyone who shall believe in the cross and believe in the blood of Christ shall receive the blessings of the new covenant, shall receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit, shall receive this new intimate relationship with God, shall receive permanent forgiveness of sins shall receive this new heart of flesh that has God's law written on the heart so that we delight to obey God's will. Through the blood of Christ and through our faith in the cross, we have been made partakers of the new covenant. So that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, that we are ministers of a new covenant. This is our covenant. We do not live under the old covenant. The Cornerstone Bible Church, brothers and sisters, I say this to shepherd your hearts because many of you are living as I lived for many years and you are living as if you are still under the old covenant. The dynamic in your Christian life from day to day is if I obey, I will be blessed. And if I disobey, I will be cursed. And brothers and sisters, I say to you, that is not our covenant. That is not the dynamic that characterizes our lives. We are people of the new covenant the covenant of the spirit, the covenant of intimacy, the covenant of forgiveness, the covenant of a new heart. And we do not obey God because we are fearful of his cursing. We obey God because he's given to us a new heart that delights to do his will because all our sins have been forgiven at the cross. We are people of the new covenant. And what God says to Jerusalem, his faithless bride, is I will make a new covenant with you. And one day I will restore you to myself. Two lessons that we learn from this chapter as we come away from its truths. And they're very simple. The first lesson is this. Our sin is worse than we think it is. Our sin is worse than we think it is. Why did God give us this chapter? Why did God give us such a graphic, really an R-rated chapter in the Bible? Why did God give us such an ugly portrait of sin? It is to communicate to us that though we are not technically the city of Jerusalem, our hearts are very similar to Jerusalem's hearts. Our hearts are adulterous hearts. Our problem is not that we do bad things. Our problem is that we love other lovers who are not God. God says to us in his word, I am the one who birthed you. 
I am the one who formed you in your mother's womb. I am the one who provided for you everything you have in your life up to this point. I am the one who gave you your education. I am the one who gave you your job. I am the one who gave you everything you have. And yet your heart is adulterous toward me and you desire to give your heart away to other lovers who do not love you and who do not care for you. We see in this chapter that sin is not just breaking God's will. Sin is breaking God's heart. Because God is the only one who loves us. And yet our hearts are adulterous like Jerusalem's. And we give our hearts away, not just to one lover or two lovers, but to multiplied lovers. And we do this every time we love anything or anyone in a way that makes them central in our hearts to our central to our identities other than God our sin is worse than we think it is one person defined idolatry as making a good thing into an ultimate thing idolatry is taking a good gift of God a gift like education or career or relationship or family or marriage or children or looks or possessions and building your heart around those things so that those things are central to your identity. And you say to those things, you will satisfy, you will provide. You will never leave me or forsake me. You will be my trust. And what God says in this chapter is that when we have done those things with our idols, we have committed spiritual adultery. We have gotten into bed with another lover. Our sin is worse than we think it is. It's deeper than we think it is. And as I looked at this whole theme of idolatry in the scriptures, my heart has been so exposed because I see that I am like Gomer, I am like Jerusalem, I don't just have one lover or two lovers, I have multiplied lovers. My heart, like Jerusalem, longs to give itself away. to idols who do not love me. And so our sin is worse than we think it is. And yet, the second lesson we learn from this passage is that though our sin is worse than we think it is, God's love is greater than our sin. His love is greater than our sin. The passage ends in verse 63 with this statement, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you, for all that you have done. After all that God has said 
about his faithless wife. This, after all the ugliness of this chapter, the chapter ends with the promise of atonement. Ezekiel, in the darkest days of Israel's history, writing right before the city of Jerusalem will be destroyed, prophesies of the future day, and he shows the exiles in that land the most glorious and beautiful sight that any eye has ever seen. He gives them a clear sighting of the glories of Calvary. And he shows them the cross. He shows them the work of Christ, which is to come. The Son of God crucified for our sins. And he shows them that though you have sinned, these multiplied sins, that God will make atonement for you. He is sending a Savior who will die for those sins. And when this Savior comes, he will satisfy God's wrath. He will take all your adultery and place it on himself. God will treat him as if he has had your adulterous heart, even though he will be a faithful Messiah without sin. And God will take his righteousness and give it to you. Ezekiel gives them a clear sight of the cross. And he says, essentially, that this is the love of God. God is your faithful husband. Christ is our faithful husband as the New Testament church. And guys, I just, you know, brothers, I know this is a little bit awkward, but let me just, there's a gender thing going on here because the Bible says to all the sisters in the church that you are all sons of God in Christ. Because in those days, the sons had the right of inheritance. And the Bible says to all the women, you are sons. And then the Bible says to all us guys, you know, macho guys, guys who like to lift weights and drive big trucks and, you know, spit out sunflower seeds. And he says to all of us, you are the bride of Christ. Christ is your faithful husband. And you know what a husband does is a husband doesn't just communicate his heart. A husband gives his heart. When I married my wife, I didn't just tell her the things that were on my heart. I gave to her my heart. And isn't this what Christ has done for us? When he died on the cross to save us from our sin. As the saying goes, I asked the Lord how much he loved me and he spread out his hands on the cross and said this much. Did not Christ, our faithful husband, love us though we have committed spiritual adultery against him? Is he not better than the idols who do not love us? 
Is he not more faithful than the idols who only rip us apart? For those of you who are single, I would say to you, you're already married. You're married to the best husband in the world. You're married to the only husband who will never let you down and who will never disappoint you. The only husband who can truly satisfy your heart. And if you're married, and if your marriage has known heartache and pain, if your spouse has hardened his or her heart against you, even your spouse has been physically unfaithful to you I will say to you this you are in a place to understand the heart of God like nobody else because God was in a hurtful marriage God was in a marriage where his wife went astray and God is in a marriage with us though we go astray he is the faithful husband. He is the most faithful lover of our souls. And one day, we will enter into the fullness of this relationship with Christ. We will all be there at the marriage supper of the Lamb. As Christ's bride, we will be presented to him spotless and blameless, without wrinkle or any such thing. And we will experience his faithful love forever and ever. Because Christ, our faithful husband, has loved us and he has saved us. And because God loves spiritual adulterers. Would you bow with me in prayer as we close our time together? Let us give God praise for his great love for us. Our Father at the cross, we kneel and we weep over the greatness of our sin. We weep because we have not just broken your will, we have broken your heart. We weep because we have multiplied our adultery throughout our lives. We have scorned your kindness toward us. And yet, we also weep tears of joy here at the cross. We weep tears of joy because you are a faithful husband. Because you have loved us. You do love us. You will love us. Because of the work of Christ in our lives, you rejoice over us. You are not a stingy husband. You have not entered into marriage with us out of duty or obligation. You have entered into marriage with us that you may lavish us with blessings beyond our wildest dreams. We give you praise for your faithful love and it is in your love we place our trust and our confidence. We pray all these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.